Hello, my name is Amanda Hope Haley, and I am the red-haired archaeologist. Thank you so much for spending some of your valuable time today getting to know me and previewing future episodes about ancient dirt and dusty finds and what they can teach us about the biblical world. Biblical archaeology is my passion, and as you listen to this podcast, I hope it will start to excite you too. Today we are going to talk about King David and the physical evidence of his existence. My husband and I lived in Murfreesboro, Tennessee for about 10 years. And while we lived there, we were in a neighborhood of small houses that was just across the street from a really large family farm, hundreds if not thousands of acres. And while we lived there, the family decided that they wanted to sell their farm. A New York-based company came in, someone who didn't really know the area at all. And as it turned out, they, uh, they were not Christians either. So they didn't have a really good idea of the Bible, but they came in and they convinced this family that the best use of their property would be to build Bible Theme Park USA. As neighbors, we were not excited about this at all. <laughs> As you can imagine, um, all we could think about was the noise and the traffic and the lights. And it was a general situation of we don't want this in our backyard. I admit it, freely admit it. No one wants a theme park in their backyard or in this case, across the street from you. There was, a, there was a lot of conversation about this at the city council and the people from New York decided it would be a really good idea to host sort of a meet and greet type session at one of the local hotels in their lobby area. I decided to go. It was like in the middle of the day on a Tuesday or a Thursday when quite frankly, most people couldn't attend because they were at work. But having the weird kind of writing job that I do, I was able to go and I did. I was, you know, walking around looking and it was really well put together. It was lots of artist sketches of what the various parts were going to look like. They talked about how they had plans for billboards on the interstate to direct people to go this way into the theme park and not through our neighborhood. They really had done their homework and done their best to address our fears. And I think a lot of people felt, a lot of people in the community felt better about it when they left, but still no one was really in favor of it. These guys had no idea what my background was, that I was a biblical archaeologist. I was just in there asking questions and looking at the various dioramas. And it dawned on me that nowhere in this presentation was there anything about David and Solomon. They were going to have sections devoted to Jesus, to just about every biblical character, biblical time period that you can think of. But David and Solomon were missing, which to me, I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jew, if you're someone who knows the Bible at all, they're pretty central to God's story. I kind of flipped into my divinity school mode and I started asking the guys who were there questions about that. I asked if it was left out intentionally and I asked if they knew about something called the low chronology, if they were biblical minimalists who were trying to keep David and Solomon out of it. Pretty sure I scared them to death. The guys who were there, they were basically real estate agents. I was asking them a lot of technical questions. They weren't ever actually able to answer my question. I left with no information. This all happened in 2007. And so with the crash in 2008, all the funding fell through. Bible Theme Park USA was never to be, at least not in Murfreesboro. So in your Old Testaments, 
the books of Samuel and Kings are where you learn the most about David and Solomon. They're your history books. In fact, in the original Hebrew, they aren't four books as we tend to see them in our Bibles today, but it's just one big collection that people uh, who study this sort of thing like to call Samuel Kings. We hyphenate it and run the words together as if it were one. These books were probably created during the monarchy, but pretty well after David and Solomon. So probably more like in the time of Hezekiah or Josiah, based on the Hebrew grammar and everything that's in there. They definitely were not written by Samuel. Of course, the first one's titled Samuel, and tradition holds that he was the one who wrote it. Common sense tells you that most of the events of the book happened well after he died. He wasn't the author. He definitely was the inspiration for all of it. He probably started a lot of the oral traditions, like we've talked about in the past, that created the book, or the book of Samuel anyway. It was his story that it starts with, and he was the inspiration for everything. But he wasn't the guy who sat down with the pen and wrote it all down. What you have in the books of Samuel and Kings are really practical looks at the kings, well, at all of the people who were living in the time of Israel. It's, it's more of a history book than, say, Chronicles. The books of Chronicles retell the same stories, but they tend to leave out the messy parts, if you will. In those books, you don't have the story of, say, David and Bathsheba, and you don't have the story of David's oldest son rebelling against him in the nation. So in the books of Samuel, King David is presented sort of as your classic underdog figure. You look at the Old Testament, God has a habit of taking the underdogs and making them the heroes of his story. David was the youngest son. He was not very strong, kind of skinny. That's the way he's described. He was not the person that all the people in the land of Israel would have expected to become their king. As the story goes, God directed Samuel to go to David's family property, and he found him and he anointed him. It would be many years before he actually became the king of Israel, but we learn a lot about him in the meantime. Before David actually becomes the king of Israel, we have a lot of stories of his life. Of course, there's the classic David versus Goliath story, where he's the little guy who takes out that Philistine giant. That giant is from the city of Gath, who we talked about last week. We find out that David is really politically minded. He, does a, he spends a lot of time going to the different tribes of Israel and gaining allies, and he actually even makes some allies within the foreign nation of Philistia. Technically, Saul was the one who united all the tribes of Israel. Before Saul became king and all the tribes came under sort of the one banner of Israel, they were basically 12 tribes who had their own pieces of land in Israel. They were ruled by judges. Samuel ends up anointing Saul king because the people are asking to have a king. God never intended for Israel to have a king. He wanted Israel to be what's called a theocracy, where God and religion is at, is at the top. So when Samuel was a judge, the people of the various tribes of Israel were asking for a king. All the people around them had kings, but God never actually intended for there to be a king. So when Saul is selected, it's almost under protest from God. His reign is notable because he technically pulls all the tribes together under the one flag of Israel. But most people, when they look at the history, they consider that David was really the one who united all the tribes into one nation. He did that because he was very politically minded. 
after he had been anointed king, but before he was officially king, before Saul died, um, he was waging war with Saul. He would go around to the different tribes and even over to Philistia, and he did a good job of making allies of all of the tribes. So that by the time Saul passed away and he was anointed king, as far as the rest of the nation was concerned, everyone was behind him. Everyone supported him. And that's why he had a relatively stable reign and why he was able to hand a united monarchy on to his son, the King Solomon. While David was in Jerusalem, he brought the ark there. This was probably the most important thing that he could have possibly done. Saul may have been the one who politically united Israel. But David was the one who brought the ark in. He brought the ark into Jerusalem so that it was the centerpiece. And he actually wanted to build the temple to God. But God said no, that that would have to wait for his son Solomon. David got the ark into Israel, but it was Solomon who would come along after him and actually build the temple, the temple complex, the palaces. He did all of the civic construction work for the city of Jerusalem, or as it was also called at the time, the city of David. The city of David still exists today, um, but it's really challenging to get to. It is technically it's on the West Bank, so it is under Palestinian control, but the Israelis have settlements there. Archaeological work has been going on at the city of David for decades, and right now a woman named Elat Mazar is in charge of it. She is working in an area called the Ophal, which was basically a giant city dump site. She, for years, has been going through and they're sifting absolutely everything that they can find. In fact, in the news in the last six months or so, somebody found King Hezekiah's seal impression, proving that he was there, (laughs) which is uh, quite exciting. I don't believe that she has found any direct evidence of King David, you know, nothing saying David was here or anything of that sort, but the work continues. It's slow going because obviously there are political concerns based on where it is located, but also it is illegal in the state of Israel to dig at the Temple Mount. Prior to 1993, no archeologist had found any hard evidence of King David. We had the stories of the Bible, but nowhere in the archeology span was his name found, any sort of reference to him in foreign records from other nations where Kings would brag about the countries and the other kings that they had conquered. His name never appeared. Because there was no physical hard evidence of David and Solomon, some biblical archaeologists became what they called biblical minimalists. They developed a new chronology of the Old Testament world. All of the people who worked within the field of biblical archaeology pretty much agreed on when things happened based on the strata in the dirt. So when you dig in the dirt in Israel, as you get lower and lower and lower, the colors of the dirt change and they form these lines. It actually looks a lot like, say, a layer cake. You might have a dark chocolate layer of cake, below it a lighter layer of chocolate buttercream, and then so on and so forth. But there are distinct lines between the two. There are color differences there. There are texture differences there. The cake is actually a lot like what you find in the dirt in Israel. Those lines have been dated to certain time periods based on what is found within those strata, what kind of artifacts are there. Say you go into Jerusalem and you're digging and you're finding these layers and you're finding certain types of artifacts within the layers. 
different, maybe different kinds of pottery with different colors, with different types of writing. Everything that you find there helps you decide what time period that color of dirt is in the layer. Then you take everything you know about Jerusalem and what the dirt looks like there, and you can compare it to the strata from other sites. By comparing various sites, archaeologists are able to create a timeline for the entire nation of Israel, for the entire area. That's important because then you can see what was going on at one city at the same time as at another city. You can see how they interacted with one another, how they traded with one another, who lived here, who lived there, which city was destroyed and by whom. The strata is really important for forming the timeline of what happened in ancient history. Well, these biblical minimalists who were looking at the dirt and seeing that there was no hard evidence of David and Solomon decided, hmm, maybe they didn't actually exist. And so they took the timeline that everyone had agreed on, they decided to chunk about 200 years out of it around 1000 BC. They took those out and then mushed the timeline together, if you will, so that those were no longer there. It affected the dating of absolutely everything that had ever been found in Israel after about 1000 BC. That then, of course, changed interpretations of the Bible, changed when we thought things happened. This, this was a really big deal. And these archaeologists went out into the field. They tried to prove this low chronology. That's what they called their new timeline, was a low chronology. This was a really big deal in archaeology. When I was in graduate school, I took a course from Larry Steyer, who was a rather prolific biblical archaeologist. Sadly, he passed away a little over a year ago. He was so incensed by the low chronology, he disagreed with it so strongly, that he ended up taking an entire two-hour class one day, and he read us letters that he and another archaeologist named Israel Finkelstein had written to each other. It was a back and forth, back and forth. It got pretty nasty. Um, Israel Finkelstein would explain why he thought David didn't exist. Professor Steger would go and contradict him on that. A lot of these actually ended up getting published in Biblical Archaeology Review. So um, this was a pretty uh, famous feud between biblical archaeologists, and I don't know how often that happens. The archaeologists who were working to prove their low chronology took what was an absence of evidence, meaning there was no evidence of David, and they tried to prove their theory because evidence didn't exist. This is not a great way to dig. They were going into the dirt and they were trying to prove an idea that they had, as opposed to going into the dirt, digging things up and seeing what it told them. Well, in 1993, all of this came to a head because at a site called Tel Dan, something was discovered. <laughs> so Dan is up very close to the Syrian border of modern day Israel. And I'm actually really excited that I'm going to be traveling there this summer. At least I hope to. Who knows? I've rented a car. I'm going to leave my husband in Jerusalem for the day and drive up there and, you know, and tour around. I, it's really going to be very exciting. During biblical times, Dan would have been part of the northern kingdom of Israel. After Solomon died and the state of Israel split into two, the north and the south. This would have been in the north. 
This would have been the area that did not have Jerusalem, did not have the temple. Um, we liked, I like to call that just the Northern Kingdom. So that's where Tel Dan is. In 1993, in Tel Dan, some archaeologists found what is called a stela. It was a piece of stone that was inscribed in very neat Aramaic characters. It was now broken, and it had been reused later on in the building of a wall there. But originally, that stela had been the story of a campaign by the king Hazael of Damascus. He is boasting in the stele that he conquered the house of David. This actually does occur in the Bible. This wasn't just any old king claiming that he had taken over a nation. There are a lot of those in the ancient world. A lot of times they're true. A lot of times they're embellished. It's possible that this stele was embellished because in it, the king boasts that his god Hadad helped him to vanquish Israelite and Judahite horsemen and charioteers, and that he personally took out the kings of both of those nations. This story actually occurs in the Bible. It comes in 2 Kings 12. The Bible's version is a little bit different. In that version, the kings end up paying tribute to Hazael instead of actually being conquered by him. So this stele did two things. It mentioned David. His name was written there for the first time anything like that had ever been discovered. That seemed to be evidence of him. It also was found in a context that fit with what was going on in the Bible. This was a problem for the biblical minimalists. The existence of this one artifact completely undid all of the academic work that these men had done to establish the low chronology. Well, for the next couple of decades, their academic acrobatics would not change. They found, out, found all sorts of reasons to claim that this wasn't David. Or maybe they said that some of the characters were not perfectly pristine. Maybe we were misreading them and it said something else. This was an argument that went back and forth. And this was the argument that my professor Steger uh, got so heated about. When I was in undergrad, I was actually taught the low chronology. I was taught that that was fact that David and Solomon didn't exist. The school I went to was a Presbyterian school. I ended up being taught all of the reasons that David and Solomon did not exist. I was really surprised when I got to Harvard, which most people would say is a more liberal institution. There, I was taught that the Tel Dan Stila absolute was real and that it proved the existence of David and Solomon. There was Harvard holding on to what a lot of us would call the traditional opinion of the Bible. I think a lot of times biblical archaeologists get accused of doing bad archaeology because there's the perception out there in the world that if you're a person who believes that the Bible is divine inspiration and you're out in the dirt working in um, a scholarly industry, then you must be tainted, you must be biased, and you're using whatever you find, twisting it to prove the Bible. This low chronology is actually an example of the exact opposite of that. Here was the earth speaking. Something came out of it that happened to agree with the Bible. And part of the secular institutions were trying to disprove it. So here was a situation where it was the secular side of biblical archaeology that was actually doing the bad archaeology. They were finding things in the dirt that very easily, very naturally agreed with the Bible, and instead they tried to twist it in ways that would disprove the Bible. Good archaeology 
no matter if it's biblical or any other form of it. Good archaeology happens when archaeologists are out there in the dirt digging things up and letting it speak for themselves. If something is found and it happens to agree with the Bible, your biblical archaeologist is going to be very excited about that. So for the average person reading the Bible, what does the Tell Dan Stila do? I mean, why does it really matter? Most of the time when archaeological artifacts are found, it changes the way we interpret the Bible. This is a rare case where it does exactly the opposite. The Tell Dan Stila proves that David was a person. He was so famous that foreign nations knew of him. Foreign nations associated him with the nation of Israel and considered him to be the father of it. So back in 2007, when I walked into that hotel lobby and started asking the real estate agents if they were biblical minimalists, this is what I was talking about. Since 1993, there have actually been a few other artifacts found that also testify to the existence of David and Solomon. But the low chronology is still something that is debated in the archaeological world. It's not as popular as it used to be. Several of the archaeologists who were involved in developing the theory have actually recanted parts of it since then as, as more things have been discovered. But you, you may hear it. You may hear people arguing that David never existed. They're right. There's not a lot of evidence out there right now, uh, but there's enough. And it just so happens to agree with the Bible. We don't have to try to fit it in. To me, that's really exciting. If you enjoyed this episode of The Red-Haired Archaeologist, then I hope you will listen again soon. New episodes will be released each Friday. To learn more about me, check out my website, amandahopehaley.com. There you will find links to my books, this podcast, and my blog, where you can interact with me and other listeners.